Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodechicago.com. So for those of you who are just joining us, we're spending a lot of time this year in the Gospel of Luke for the simple reason that in all the ways that we love to be formed in community and individually, one of the most powerful ways is just to be formed by the person of Jesus. And so we are just sitting with his words. We're diving deep into these stories um, that impacted not just just the early church, but still us today. And when we're um, reading in the news, or I just was listening yesterday to um, the finish of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, for those of you who've heard it, and it can get super discouraging, right? And I was driving home, uh, listening to the final episode yesterday, and just thinking to myself about this morning, and I just thought, Jesus is what is compelling. If we're formed as people into the likeness of Jesus a little bit more every day, then there's something that compelling there that can tell a different story, a Jesus way story uh, over and against what, what the world is telling us. So a little aside, that's why we're in Luke a lot um, through the course of this year. Now, of course, um, This is a familiar story to a lot of us, and we'll get to that in a minute. But last week, you may recall, that first Sunday of Lent, we started in this passage that for Luke is actually a big bulk of the book, where in chapter 951, Luke says that Jesus sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. And so for Luke, we're in this long part where Jesus' face is set towards the goal ahead, and he's been on this path, and he'll continue for a while, and we see healings, restorations, teaching, challenging teaching and people uh, following and listening and coming up against and not liking it very much as well. So we see a lot. We have onlookers and devoted followers and enemies all coming and having this attention draw to this person, Jesus, who people are declaring is the Messiah. And Um, the people were worried about this too, speaking and acting with the authority of God. This was uh, a dangerous thing um, in many ways. And so we are following along with Jesus as he's resolutely set towards Jerusalem and we want to be shaped by these teachings that are radical and the things that are going on here. So today's passage, of course, is what we call the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And um, one of the things I wanted, when I was thinking about just our familiarity with this story, I was thinking, you know, it's really important for us to remember that we're all in different levels. This is a very safe place to be if you've been reading the Bible your whole life and you know this story inside and out, or if you've just heard this as a cultural metaphor and you've never picked up a Bible in your life, all of us are being shaped um, in community together. And so I wanted to take a minute, since we're in a really familiar story in many ways, um, and, and, and pause in this moment, because our world knows the story of the Good Samaritan. Even if you've never picked up a Bible, you know this, this metaphor of a Good Samaritan. I Googled this a couple days ago. I was in Michigan visiting my parents, and so it wasn't a Chicago-based Google search. It was Michigan. And I Googled Good Samaritan to see, like, what does Google think of when we hear the word Good Samaritan? And tons of stuff popped up. Uh, there were news stories. There was a charity. There was a homeless shelter. There was a hospital. There was a, a senior citizens facility. Um, There was also the reminder of the Good Samaritan Law. Have you guys heard of that? There's a law that protects a person who's trying to do good. If in the course of doing good to someone, they accidentally hurt them, that person can't sue them back. 
Well, I mean, they can, but that person would be protected. Like, there's a law. In Michigan, actually, the Good Samaritan Law, I'm sure you guys want to know this, but I'm telling you because I was in Michigan, and Google told me there's a Good Samaritan Law um, for people who are overdosing on drugs. There's a law that says you can't be charged for possession of an illegal drug if you save someone who's who's going through an overdose. The idea is don't count the cost, just do good. And that's the Good Samaritan Law. And so this this term, though, I mean, it's all over. It was a a good, solid page. I didn't go to the others. Of organizations, shelters, et cetera, that bear this name. Our world knows this name of the Good Samaritan. The concept being be a good person, be a helper. And I wanted to take a pause. Because of the familiarity of this term and this story, I wanted to take a pause to not just teach from the text, which we try to do all the time here, but to also teach about the text, this book that is the Bible, because we're all in different places of our familiarity. So in the familiarity of a story, let's not assume familiarity with this book that is our holy scripture. So we're going to look at a couple of things just super quick, because Bible lessons are important. One of the things I want to say in teaching about the book of the Bible, if we look at the original text lined up next to um, our text that we hold in our hands today, you'll notice one thing, and that is there They're not in the same language. They're actually not even using the same alphabet. So on the right, we have the ancient Greek, and on the left, we have our Bible. I underlined the the word here, and one of the things I want to point out is about translation. There is no one-to-one translation in language. That's just not the way language works. And so when we talk about helping you find a Bible that's right for you, which Sam and I would love to help you do that, you might immediately feel frustrated and just say, well, just give me the one that's right. And that's a very normal reaction when we get frustrated with translation. But the truth and the humbling truth, the good to remember truth, is that the Bible wasn't written in English, nor was Jesus speaking in English. And so one of the things is that we use outside sources to help us get to what's going on um, in the text. So the, the one I underlined here is expert in the law. Some translations say lawyer. And we think, you know, courtroom, I object. But that's not the kind of lawyer that the ancient Greek is talking about. It's an expert in the law. And you may get super frustrated and say, how am I ever supposed to know that if my translation says lawyer and I'm thinking of law and order right now? Well, the way that we do, we have a couple different tools. And one of those, if you go online, uh, that I would recommend to you, blueletterbible.org is free. And you can do any given verse and then see how do these translations all do this, and you can start to get an idea. Some say lawyer, and some say expert in religious law. And you start to see, oh, there's a fullness here. And if you're bugged and you're saying, Melissa, I honestly am not going to know to look that up every time, another really great way is what's called a study Bible. I brought one here. Um, This is a... uh, cultural background study Bible. Anyway, the translators go ahead and give you some of this information so you think, okay, we're not in a courtroom. We're talking somebody whose life is studying the law of God. What passion they have to do it right. And our heart no longer is thinking of a courtroom, I object situation, but instead we start to see here is somebody impassioned with his livelihood to know the law of God and to do it right. So that's one thing that we observe, and it's a good, humble reminder to say, don't be so quick of like, I know that story. I actually know about the ministry that's named after that story. Like, let's not write it off. Let's pause and get deep into it. The next thing you might notice, this is an aside, it actually has 
nothing to do with the sermon. It's just a little free tidbit. Is that if you look again, we have all these numbers and like chapters and verses. And basically, my mom calls these the address. I can't remember the address, but the Bible says this. And that's a way to think of it. Really what it is, you'll notice there's none of this there. The reason I pointed out that's important to know is that it's a really great reference tool for us to find a portion of scripture. But that was not Luke's original intent. We have textbooks and fiction books that break in a chapter. And you turn the page to a new chapter and you know, now we're talking about global warming or whatever. Like, you know it's a new thing. Well, Luke didn't say chapter 10, new thing. It's just our address. And that's a good thing, but don't let it get in your way. If it's getting in your way, my recommendation for you, because sometimes it gets in my way. I can think it's a new topic by the original intent. Go to Bible Gateway, and there's this little settings button that Sam taught me a little while ago, where you can unclick verse numbers and headings, and then you just read through like Luke intended. There's a flow, there's a movement that our addresses, our reference numbers can get in the way. So that's just a little tidbit. It's a good way to read scripture if you wanna try it that way. Um, And then the third thing that I wanna bring up is the titles. And that is what the point is of this story today. We, I don't know who we is, but not Luke and not Jesus, picked a title for this story and a lot of stories. And we picked the title, The Good Samaritan. You may notice Jesus never calls the Samaritan good. That's not in there. But we know about the good Samaritan, don't we? And we know that in our world, uh, that just means good citizen, a good good person. Well, so much gets lost when we get that title so familiar in our culture. First of all, a Samaritan is the cultural, ethnic, religious designation of this human who was an absolute enemy of the Jews. And the person who's getting this parable taught to them is a religious law expert. He didn't like this parable. Our lawyer was not pleased that the person who was doing the right thing was a Samaritan. It would be a yucky feeling. My really light version, and you would know this right away, if we're here in Wrigleyville and there's like a Cubs game going on, and I said, once upon a time, I was walking down Clark Street during a Cubs game and a Sox fan walked up, you could read a whole bunch into what this encounter was going to be automatically. You would just know contention, you'd get it. And that piece is lost on us because our culture has taught us to be a good Samaritan, is to be a good citizen. When I was looking up that that Google search, I noticed this. When the news stories come up about a good Samaritan, the good Samaritan is the big deal of the story. So for example, if I am saved from my burning car, the headline would would read, woman saved from burning car. And you would just know it's probably like, Andy maybe did it, a firefighter did it, the world was working right, the story would be about me and my car. And you'd be like, what happened? All the headlines that start with a good Samaritan start with the word, the word good Samaritan saves woman from car. And your first thing is like, why? Who's this person? This plain clothes hero that did this thing. The emphasis is always on the good Samaritan and they're our hero. And so we lose something because we could miss a part of this story that was so impactful in its original context. The good person is the enemy. And that should rub us wrong if we're in the shoes of the lawyer. So that's the first thing we want to say. Samaritans were those who culturally had intermarried with the pagans during the intertestament period, the period of time between Old and New Testaments. 
some of the Jewish people went into another area, intermarried with the pagans, which was a not cool thing to the Jewish law. They'd corrupted the purity of the Jewish faith in the Jews' eyes. They were half-breeds, both biologically and theologically. Don't blame me, I'm quoting some uh, commentary. That, 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 that would have been the mindset. There was great hostility in both directions. That part is like the, the Sox and Cubs things, right? Like both sides. It's not like one is shamed and the other is exalted. They both think the other are no good. There's just real animosity. And we remember just last week that we got a sense of that, right? Jesus set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. They went through Samaria on their path and the Samaritans offered Jesus no hospitality. You guys, in that culture, a lack of hospitality was unheard of it was just such an important thing that you would open your home to a stranger like this hospitality was like paramount so that that was a slap in the face and what did James and uh John say like do you want us to smite them do you want us to call down fire from heaven do you remember that last week and Jesus said no that's not what my ministry is about guys we're not going to do that that's a paraphrase of what Jesus said but we're, we're not going to do that that's not what this is about but what we already sensed there was the level of animosity just a few verses ago and we know that culturally there is a big there's a big rub here um and so, but, but Jesus, of course, right, demonstrated, he expressed a different heart, a heart of this ministry that was, I'm going to keep going resolutely towards Jerusalem for those, those people as well as for you, right? He continues on. Anyway, my concern is that we see this title and we're familiar because of our culture or Bible study and we skip it and we say, I know that one. And here's what I want to say. Every time we pick up this Bible, this word of God, there is more to learn. Scripture itself says that the word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4.12. That's the words printed in scripture and the words of God that we know through scripture. Those words are living and active and they work. They form us. Psalm 119. On and on. I will meditate on your word. Don't give up if a word is familiar to you. A story is familiar. John 14 that we talked about last week. In there Jesus said, when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of what I said and did. And the way that the Holy Spirit Spirit can do that work is when we sit and know our scriptures so we know what Jesus said. So we do not give up with familiarity and we decide, you know what, we're going to look and be learners of this book and not tune out because something's familiar. Because when I came up and Kristen read that passage, you probably sat back and you said, oh, good, this is going to be a sermon about doing good things, even if it costs me some denarii. And I know what to expect and I'm going to hear about doing good like the Samaritan. And there's just more than that. I think it's important that we're willing to say like, I, I wanna find out more from this text and I want to be challenged. We wanna be challenged. And here, speaking of challenge, is a piece that we notice right away in Luke's text. The lawyer, the expert of the law, comes to test Jesus. Scripture tells us that. Something in this encounter makes it clear that his intentions were not to be in the learner's seat. That's not what the posture that this man took as he approached Jesus. His intention was to test what is written in the law. Okay, so the, te the test was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to this test. Apparently, I mean, we, we get the sense that like Luke knew it was a test. Jesus knew it was a test. There must have been something contentious in the tone. So Jesus replies with a question, which I love. Jesus often, if you guys notice this in the Gospels, when there's an encounter, there's often a question. And I think that what we can always take in that is like a drawing in. 
Let me bring you into this story to engage. Get engaged. I'm not just going to hand you info. I'm gonna, we're going to be engaged in this together. So anyway, Jesus answers with a question. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Super quick note, side note. Do this and you will live does not mean, oh good, do this thing and you will earn eternal life. This is a different, we just know that's not Jesus' MO, so we can't read it like that. What he's really talking about here is um, enter into this, this love of God, this love of nature, the, of, of neighbor. This is, a, um, this is a relationship. Enter in and find true life. That's what that means. So I just want to make sure we don't hear like an earning it by doing good gospel. That's not the, like enter into this, this love of God. God that happens. This is a spiritual relationship. This is a way of life. So anyway, with this, this thing that he said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. We've seen this teaching elsewhere. And we'll notice that in Luke's version of this, the, uh, the encounter where Jesus says this command, this greatest command is to do this, is in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. And in those cases, what's happened is somebody approaches Jesus and says, teacher, tell us the greatest commandment. Tell us. That's a learner's seat. And Jesus teaches that this is the greatest commandment. In Matthew 22, he sa- uh, starting in verse 37, Jesus replies to this person who is asked to learn and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So he's been teaching this already really quickly on the law, right? We know that the law was handed to, um, to Moses in the Ten Commandments, and we actually see this. The first, I think it's the first four commandments are all about loving God, and the next six are all about loving each other well. And then as time goes on, uh, the, these laws, it's like, how, these are really, really good. This is summarized, loving God and loving others. How do we live this out? Well, the whole first few books of the Bible are all about more of these commands. God just sharing. How do we do this? Save the edge of your field for the, the foreigner and the poor people so that they have something to eat. Do these things. Don't do this on Sunday. Do this before to get ready. These are the ways. I'm going to flush this law out so it makes more sense. Well, now time goes on and religious law experts added to it to make it, to like, help me. Where are my boundaries? This is really nebulous. So I give you an example that might make sense to you. If I said, no cooking on the Sabbath, you need to hold, keep it holy. Honor the Lord your God by keeping the Sabbath holy. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? I mean, for example, don't do a ton of work that day. Okay, so like don't vacuum, but can I feed my family? Okay, yes, you can feed your family. Just don't bake it on that day. Maybe prepare it before. Okay, can I reheat it in the microwave? Okay, you can reheat it in the microwave, but only like they, they spilled out all these rules with the intention in the heart to make this law livable. So you knew whether or not you were, you were in the grace of God or if you needed to repent. And that's okay because there was always grace embedded in the law. Grace was there, but it had gotten really really, really big and specific, and there were people whose job it was to, like, check it, at least they thought that was their job, and to see who was right and who wasn't, and it had gotten a bit messy. It had gotten really hard to live up to, right? We know this. So the law started here with the heart of God. Love God and love others. It expanded to huge, 
All these rules on how much I can microwave. I don't mean to mock. I'm just trying to bring it to us, right? I'm not mocking. Well, I, I didn't mean it to sound like it, at least. Anyway, so the law got to here, and it's so cumbersome and big. And then Jesus walks in, and he just pierces right back to the heart of the law. Time and time again, doesn't he? He comes in, he says, the law says don't commit adultery. I want to go way back before you're in the wrong bedroom. Watch your eyes that they don't wander so your heart doesn't move and your mind doesn't take possession of somebody. And don't do any of that. Can we talk way before the act? Let me get to the heart. Don't lust. Way before the murder, way before you grab the weapon, way before you're plotting and standing in a dark alley waiting, go way back to the heart. Don't let anger fester in your heart. Let me heal you of that. Time and time again, Jesus goes, here's the letter, get back to the heart. And that's what he's been teaching in these moments. Love God, love others. If this feels like a huge statement, it is, but it's also beautifully simplified, isn't it? Right to the heart. If you're new to that whole summary of all of the law, I highly recommend this very readable book by Scott McKnight. He calls this the Jesus Creed. If Jesus is just saying like, hey guys, you know what the heart of all the law and the prophets is? Love God and love others. That's his creed. And it's like how to live that out can feel hard, but it's really beautiful. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like do this and you will live. Find life in this way of living that God intended us to be. So anyway, he summarizes all of this into this Jesus creed. Well, this lawyer knew that. And that's what I want us to notice really quickly. Like the lawyer said the point to the heart of the law summation that Jesus had given, he's heard this teaching. Word about Jesus is spreading, remember? And so he's heard it somewhere. And when Jesus asks him, he recites back the teaching that Jesus himself has already given to the people. So he repeats it back. But Luke tells us in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's kind of like the, the law of the microwave. Well, is it cooking if I reheat it? Like, give me the specifics so I know my obligation. Get specific with me. And we notice here, his motives are known. He wanted to justify himself. He didn't want it to be about divine grace or anything like that. He wanted to know that he was going to be justified in the end, that, that he was meeting his obligation. So in Jewish oral tradition, uh, there was a statement that had defined that the neighbor in the law was your fellow Jews. That was defined, that that was who the neighbor was. But Jesus was coming against this deeply entrenched tradition that Jesus knew distorted the heart of God. If we go back all the way to original covenant that God made with Abraham, reaffirmed with, with Moses, I will be a blessing to all nations through you. This isn't just for your nation, your tribe, your group. And Jesus is calling people back to that version of covenant uh, faithfulness to God and to everyone. All people are to be blessed by God through you. So when the law had become to be focused on a specific designation, he wants to know where's my obligation so I can do good and be on the right side of the law. Back to the familiarity of this name for a second. N.T. Wright points out, like at first glance, you read this story, like I said, you know what I'm going to say, do good, but I'm not going to say that. But that's good, like doing good is good. That's not a bad thing. That's the first level of this story. Do good for people. 
If you get a little deeper and you start to know about this whole thing between the Samaritans and the Jews, you might rightly look a little further and say, this is actually a statement to, to not, not be um, only giving benefit to my tribe, my people. This might actually be a statement to not be uh, biased based on, on race or culture or ethnicity or background. And you would be right. That is a next layer that's there. Don't be prejudiced. True and important. But I want us to go even deeper still. Because what I want us to see in this story that's actually a little bit startling is the fuel. What I would call the fuel behind the thing that's making people choose what to do. The lawyer's question, his fuel is obligation. For sure, 100%. To whom am I obligated to bless with my provision. That's the other thing. Do you kind of see how there's this, uh, this reciprocity or maybe this, um, you know, when you do good and you give somebody something, you can have that attitude of like, I have blessed you with my goodness and you are this poor person who is now blessed because of me. There can be like a weird thing that happens there and that's kind of his tone here. It's like patronizing benevolence. We don't want to do patronizing benevolence. And that's kind of his tone here. Who should I bless with my awesomeness? Who am I obligated to do? So I'm good in God's sight, and that person's all blessed. That, there's patronizing tone in there. And so that's, that is a thing that can happen with um, this call to just universal benevolence. That, that can be a thing. If your fuel is this obligation, then you, you, might, you might find yourself in that place, right? Um, you get, one uh, commentator said, like, there, there can be a smug sense of superior goodness that comes when your fuel is based on this. But here's what I really love in this moment that I, I want to point out. The question posed to Jesus is, who is my neighbor? Jesus returns with the question, who was the neighbor? Who did the neighbor thing? Not who is my neighbor that I can smugly give benevolence to, but who did the neighbor thing? And he flips the question to the lawyer. Who did it? And the initial shock, of course, for the lawyer is that it was the Samaritan. Now, if we look at the story, the parable that Jesus tells, this lawyer is probably ready for what the twist is going to be at the end. First, there's a priest, then there's a Levite. And who's the one who did good? Probably the layperson, the normal everyday Jew out on the, the walk. And the story here is against the religious elite. That would be the expected progression of these three people who bypassed the, um, the person who had been robbed. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's getting deeper than that. And yes, it challenges racial categorization, but it's even deeper still. Because what's the fuel for this enemy's action? It's not obligation, you guys. He's a Samaritan. They didn't even offer hospitality to Jesus, not even knowing he's the Messiah. Like the Samaritans should, that culture, you offer hospitality to anybody, not to mention the Messiah. They didn't even do that, right? He, there's no sense of obligation here whatsoever because this is an enemy. No law shared, zero obligation. He's fueled by compassion. The piece of this story, the parable name that we've given it, Good Samaritan, part of what we lose, have you guys heard of an oxymoron? Oxymoron are two words that go together that seem like they would negate each other, like jumbo, shrimp, civil, war. 
old news. These things don't feel like a fit, right? That doesn't make any sense. Well, that's what Good Samaritan would have sounded like. But if I could change the title, if they had consulted me when they printed our English translation, I would call this the compassionate enemy. That doesn't make any sense. The compassionate enemy stops us in our track because therein lies the shock. It's not just about a good citizen. It's a compassionate enemy, showing compassion to their very enemy. Uh, The NLT, New Living Translation, summarizes this, I think, beautifully in 1033. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Way beyond the letter of the law, right? Just like Jesus always gets to. We're going to way past the letter. We're going to get straight to the heart. This man, who counts as a neighbor according to the law of God, so I can feel justified that I'm good. What's the heart? The heart is compassion. That's the heart of God. Mercy, compassion, justice, shalom. This is the the heart of God. And this man put that heart into action. Who was the neighbor in action in this story? Who did that thing? I love one of, our, um, one of our ministry partners that we support here at Monsieur de Wrigleyville is Partners uh, Relief and Development. They do important work with um, refugees around the globe. Actually, for those of you who are Monsieur de uh, partners or givers here, I, I want to let you know we just gave um, a do- do- donation from us to them um, to help with the refugee situation in Ukraine. They do amazing work, boots on the ground. It's beautiful. And their tag is to love is to act. These things can't be separated. To love is to act. Jesus goes on to show the Samaritans compassion wasn't simply a feeling. Feelings are good. It wasn't simply a feeling. It was authentic for real compassion, which always calls forth action. So when he inquires, who's my neighbor? One of the things that we see in this story is this desire to calculate who I'm supposed to give my love to. There's a scarcity mindset in that as well that I want to come up against. But as we go from the priest to the Levite, here's the other thing we see in the parable. Um, there's 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 a tribal mindset, right? So priests, Levites, this is from a tribe of the the nation of of Israel, they were born into this role, is my point. This wasn't something um, that they were born into it. Their status came uh, from where they were born. And what it led to was a very easy us-them categorization that would be always going on in their mind. And that's something that we want to come against is an us-them categorization that's always deciding who's on my team, who's in my tribe. But instead, this man, this enemy, what individualizes him is his compassion that leads to action completely contrasted to their inaction. That's what stands out. So Jesus here, as uh, I think it was Joel Green says this, Jesus nullifies the worldview that gives rise to such questions as who is my neighbor. The purity holiness matrix has been capsized. That's really beautiful. It's capsized that mindset. And here's the thing that I want to point out, back, get back to again. Like the question that I have, if we get past the, it's good to do good. Don't, don't, but don't be prejudiced. These are all good things. This is good. But like, get behind it. Like, what's the fuel for the thing in this story? This have to, have to be righteous versus compassion, reflecting the heart of God. I was struck this week. I went to a, a event recently, and they gave um, all of us this little devotional by uh, Peter Scazzaro. Really good. And I was really struck by this quote. Um, 
I'm gonna just read it for you. When, and here's the thing we want to be thinking about in this. What's the fuel behind the action? What's the fuel behind the doing good? This is uh, Parker Palmer saying this. When I give something I do not possess, I give a false and dangerous gift. A gift that looks like love, but is in reality loveless. A gift given more from my need to prove myself than from the other's need to be cared for. One sign that I'm violating my own nature in the name of nobility is a condition called burnout. Though usually regarded as a result of trying to give too much, burnout in my experience, Parker Palmer says, and I agree, results from trying to give what I do not possess, the ultimate in giving too little. Burnout is a state of emptiness to be sure, but it does not result from giving all I have. It merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place. What's the fuel behind the good that we want to and long to do? Because if we look at this Samaritan, this quote unquote enemy who was the neighbor in action, did the thing, the fuel was nothing about legal requirements, moral obligation. You notice that he's not even gonna get recognition for this, you guys, he travels on. In my mind, that guy's still like passed out and hurting in the bedroom. He pays for his nursing care. No one ever gets the sense that this Samaritan is gonna get some credit, reward, storyline, good Samaritan saves guy from the bandits. There's not gonna be a headline like that. And so we see here his motivation was only about compassion for a person who's been made in the image of God and who is suffering. And we notice this compassion is important in Luke's gospel account because Luke starts out by recording this, uh, this prophetic song of Zechariah before John the Baptist was born, the miraculous birth. And in that, Zechariah talks about the compassion, the mercy of God. That's in Luke 178. He's declaring, Luke is making sure to record, we know the mercy of God that these miraculous things are happening. A little further on in Luke 7:13, we just hear that Jesus stops what he's doing to heal a widow's only son who's dying because he saw her and had compassion on her. The same thing. This is the compassion of God, the compassion of Christ, and now the compassion of a Samaritan. The language of this current passage, this love of neighbor flows out of radical love of God. Because the Samaritans believed in God too. That was a whole other thing. Like they, were, they, they were the people of God and they had had a major rift with the Jews. But the whole point is, is this is reflecting the love of God and it's reflecting the love of God that Luke sees again and again through the person and works of Jesus Christ. What do we notice about this kind of love? As I was looking at the Samaritan, I was actually seeing the love of Christ so mirrored in the way that this love was in action. Love to love is to act. What did the Samaritan do? Like Jesus, the Samaritan reaches across boundaries cultural boundaries. I'm not talking about geographical boundaries. This was a radical boundary to reach across, to touch, to pick up, to heal, to restore. That was reaching across a boundary. That touch touched the unclean. Part of the reason that all the commentators were like, probably the reason the priest and the Levite went on is there's a chance that that man was dead. He looked pretty dead. And to touch a dead person makes you ritually unclean. And then you got to spend like a week getting re-cleaned before you can go into your work. And this was not going to be a good thing. It reaches to the unclean and touches real physical contact. Picked him up, put him on his donkey. 
It heals this love, heals even at great cost. The cost isn't counted. The healing still comes without reward. This guy wasn't going to get a headline. There's no reward that this person could give back. Like we can't give anything back to Christ. No reciprocity. There's none of that, which culturally would have been a really big thing. If I give something to you, if I'm uh, a favor to you, there's an implied favor that's owed back. Jesus undoes all of that. And so does this story. And it's undeserved grace without any other reason except that it's fueled by the very compassion for another human being, compassion of God, compassion of Christ. And this person reflected that compassion at great cost. So here's the trick. Because if I stand up here and say, this isn't just a sermon to do good, it's a sermon to have compassion. Then we've just conjured up another thing we're supposed to do, right? It's not just that. The exhortation isn't do good because you're supposed to, and now be compassionate because you're supposed to. That's not how it works. The real truth of this is that our prayer today comes from a place that says, I want to actually be that compassionate. I want to feel that way. I want to feel that way when no one's going to take notice and write a headline about me. When I'm not going to get praise, when it may cost me something, break my heart for what breaks yours, God. Actually give me that, shape me, mold me, make this real for me so that I'm not doing anything out of obligation at all. What if I actually had compassion in that moment? That would be beautiful. These little tastes of us being able to be formed. Holy Spirit, actually form us to people who reflect your love, Jesus. Reflect your compassion. The thing I want to see in this story, beyond the familiarity of it, beyond the shock of the compassionate enemy, is that these words that we're spending time in, the goal is that we actually are looking not just at the words, but the word, capital W, the word is Christ Jesus. And if we're allowing that word to shape us and form us, then we're actually asking for hard things. Like, make me compassionate when it costs something. Ugh. When it doesn't feel clean. Ugh. I don't want to, but make me want to. That's a big prayer, you guys. It's a beautiful prayer. And it's also like I'm reminded of that man who says to Jesus, like, I believe. Heal my unbelief. Forgive my unbelief. I feel that way sometimes. Like, make me compassionate. Oh, forgive me that I don't want to touch it. It's messy. I love that prayer. It's real. But I want us to be praying in a way that actually says that we want to be formed as the fuel of compassionate people because that reflects the heart of our God. And that's how kingdom inbreaking happens is when God can work through people who are actually longing to be formed into the very image of Christ. And Jesus ends this story. Who was the neighbor? The one who did these things. And he says, do likewise. Our prayer is that our love of neighbor could be turned into real action, real action fueled by compassion. So I'm going to pray and we're going to let you guys continue on. But I just, I want to pray, God, that even when things start as obligation, there's a nugget of, there's a nugget of your work that can still come when we are just like, oh, kind of grinding our teeth, but saying, I want to do good. 
But I pray, God, through the Holy Spirit, that you would actually change our hearts, break our hearts for what breaks yours, that we would truly become people who are fueled not by obligation, but by an honest desire to reflect your heart, your compassion, your justice, your shalom, your love, your mercy, your tender-hearted mercy on people who just need to know your love so that we don't get the headline of Good Samaritan saves the day. Not at all, God. Help us to just like rid us of the desire for recognition, but allow us in our embodied selves to be people who are saying like, no, in that moment, I want you to encounter the love of God through my hands, my feet, my donation, my, my prayers, my whatever it is. Like give us hearts fueled by your compassion that can help to, to make paths for kingdom inbreaking right here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.